At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for us, for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. From Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Daniel. All right. So before jumping into our passages today, I just want to share a few thoughts on Advent in the, the season. Um, as many of you may be aware, Advent comes from a Latin word, Adventus, meaning coming or arrival. And that Latin word, Adventus, is the translation of a Greek word, parousia, a word that's used throughout the New Testament of, to describe the second coming of Christ. So Jesus coming not as a baby, but as a king. The first Advent, where Jesus came as a baby, is what we celebrate at Christmas, and that is the basis of our hope for Jesus to return as a king. Advent is the season which helps us to live in anticipation of Jesus's return. And truly, the church knows of no season other than, except the season of Advent. We are always living in a season of waiting and anticipation. 
as a child, I remember um, waiting for Christmas Day. I experienced an intentional delay of gratification um, by waiting until Christmas Day to open my presents. Um, and as a church season, Advent reflects the same spirit of waiting, of delaying gratification. That's why we wait till Christmas Eve to sing the best Christmas carols. We intentionally delay the celebration in our liturgy, and instead we sing songs of darkness, songs of judgment, apprehension, and apocalyptic weight. And I'd say if Advent should shape our imaginations and form our faith, it should do this. It should expose our need for a savior, and it should give us the strength to reject the many false messiahs on offer knowing that it's only God who can deliver us. Advent teaches us to wait, to be empty, and to live in anticipation of a promise to be fulfilled. Why? Because the first Advent doesn't fully and finally answer every question, fill our every need, and bring about every promise of old. We're still waiting for God's promises of justice and peace and presence and mercy to take their final form in his return. We want shalom. We want God's kingdom come. We want peace on earth. We want health. We want goodness to wrap us up. We want our tears wiped away. We want memories of pain and loss to fade. We want justice to roll down like the waters, obliterating every structural sin that contaminates our well don't we? This Advent, we studied Isaiah's pro prophetic description of Israel's Messiah. In this prophecy penned several centuries before the first Christmas, God promised that in his timing, God's own spirit-filled servant will bring about spiritual renewal, awakening, and justice among the earth, among the Gentile nations. We read, here is my servant in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. This justice will extend to everyone, everywhere, even to the former is, uh, enemies of Israel, like the Philistines who sought to enslave the Israelites and the Egyptians and Babylonians who actually did enslave them. We take comfort um, this Advent in recalling the manner in which that justice will come about. Um, he will not shout, or cry out, or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Justice will come about, but not. Uh, but the way justice comes about is not through eye for an eye retribution, and sticking people with what they really deserve. Justice will come about restoratively through Christ's tender, compassionate care for the weak and the downtrodden. And this year, it's not difficult to see ourselves in those limping stalks of wheat and those candles with more of an afterglow than a true flame. But this year, what is difficult is in spite of grief and devastating loss, months-long isolation, burdensome government regulations paralleling restrictions of wartime, the fearful disease, what is difficult is in spite of the harder work for students, teachers, healthcare workers, and countless others, a seemingly more cursed ground to till, the cat and mouse 
recession and economic loss, especially for the most vulnerable, with many local businesses closing their doors, in spite of the recent bombing in Nashville, unrest throughout the world, in spite of all these things that make us apt to identify with the language of being bruised reeds and smoldering wicks, what is difficult is to remember that our weary condition has its true origin in sin. There is no justice in a cursed land. It's difficult to identify with being bruised reeds for the right reasons and to actually then put our hope in Christ and not for the smaller resolution of this year's difficulties. What makes us bruised reeds and smoldering wicks is the pervasive corruption that we're born into, our willful participation into a self-serving system of injustice and idolatry, our inability to will anything pertaining to our salvation, our backs turned on God and others. Isaiah reminds us of this. In bringing about this renewal and justice, the first thing that God's servant uh, will come to do is judge idolatry and wickedness. This, this servant will fulfill the role that Israel herself was set apart to have. Excuse my clock. So he, he actually does the, the, the things that in the covenant with Abraham, Israel was called to do, being a light to the nations. And Jesus, the suffering servant, takes on God's judgment for sin. This is God's first answer to our deepest human need for justice on earth. He takes it to the cross out of love and for the sake of justice and mercy. So here we are, we're in Advent, the season of waiting, waiting for this servant of God to finish the work of redemption, buying back the creation for his own good purposes. And so it's appropriate to talk about waiting. It's appropriate to talk about what faithful waiting looks like. Our two passages today include a parable of the ten bridesmaids and excerpts from the end of Revelation. So something like mid-apocalypse and post-apocalypse, if you will. Um, the sober-minded, um, apocalyptic waiting stands in stark contrast to the fluffy goodwill-for-all mindset of our culture this time of year. The parable of the wise and foolish bridesmaids is all about waiting for our Savior to come and finish this work we're talking about. So let me set a little bit of context. Just two days before the Passover, so this is very close to the, the crucifixion and the end of Jesus' life, Jesus leaves the temple with his disciples, walking towards the Mount of Olives. He looks back at the temple and cryptically predicts that one day it will be decimated. He says not one stone will be standing, remain standing. And it will that, that will be the case on this fearsome day of the Lord. Um, so when the disciples reach the Mount of Olives, they start asking Jesus about these cryptic statements that he makes. When will this happen? When will he return? What will be the signs that mark the end of the age? So Jesus doesn't answer them directly. Instead, he warns them about those who will come in his name claiming to be the Messiah. Jesus prepares his disciples that many will fall away as a result of the persecution that the church will suffer. Um, because the king is long coming, many grow weary in keeping watch. Many will be foolish and ill-prepared. Many will act lawlessly, as, as the next parables indicate, and take advantage of others. Many will live in fearful inactivity. Many will cease in doing good. Many will fall away. Many will stop participating in the kingdom. And when the king returns, all that's left is a game, a charade, 
and not genuine faith. Jesus warns his disciples so that they'll endure and so that they'll care for the church who also must endure. He says, therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. So when he's describing his return, Jesus describes it like a marriage banquet, um, exciting, joyful. There's a celebration. The picture here is of a bridegroom who's expected to arrive, to arrive tonight, actually, tonight, a wedding missing only the groom. Ten bridesmaids are waiting, each with an oil lamp, and they all fall asleep. There's room for human frailty in, in this, and we, everyone falls asleep. Um, but the one keeping watch alerts the bridesmaids to wake up and come out to meet the bridegroom. But some, some of their oil candles burn low, their candles are dim, and Jesus deems these bridesmaids foolish for not bringing oil that will last through the night. They're ill-prepared for his delayed arrival. Others, the other five, are deemed wise because they brought extra oil prepared for the possibility of a very, very late arrival. Some had extra oil to replenish their lamps while others didn't. And as a result, the wedding banquet proceeds with only half an attendance and the bridesmaids who had to wake up some poor oil merchant in the middle of the night, they're not let in. Truly, the bridegroom says, I don't know you. So we're warned, keep watch because we don't know the day or the hour. The kingdom is for those who are prepared, it seems, those who are ready, those who are waiting, those who are watching. He says, this is what the kingdom will be like when I return joy, celebration, a wedding feast for those who know me. The question for the waiting church is this. What does it mean to be ready for the coming of our Lord? What does it mean for a community that knows its brokenness, a community of bruised reeds and smoldering wicks, to be ready, even though we are weary, even in discouraging years that people are all too ready to be done with, what does it mean to have enough oil stored up, enough supply to last the night? Well, according to his promise, we wait for the new heavens and the new earth. For that day when we read in Revelation, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her, her husband. What kind of oil do we need in our lamps? I'll ask that again. What kind of oil do we need in our lamps? In one sermon... In, in one sermon I was listening to, a, a preacher recalled a church, um, what they called the, an Advent church, a church in waiting, whose faith in waiting was proved true amidst a trial that few of us can truly imagine. So I don't know if you remember this, five years ago in Charleston, South Carolina, a historically black church held a weekly Bible study, and a white man entered. They showed him true Southern, Southern hospitality, he sat through the whole Bible study, and when they were in a circle holding hands in prayer at the end, he perpetrated great evil against them and took many of their lives in open fire. This act was motiva motivated by beliefs of white supremacy. And the community of survivors were left with the task of picking up the pieces of loss, working through the questions of how and why, reconciling the reality of their blackness with America today. But this church forgave the man. And I don't think they just followed naive counsel to gloss over the event and suppress their sadness 
as their Christian duty, this, there, were, there was something different going on. One pastor reflected on this and said, the members of Mother Emanuel Church who lost their pastor, their relatives, their friends in a bloody hateful assault are not teenagers unaccustomed to suffering, crime, violence, and death. These are adults who have seen the ugliness and human character that white people cannot even comprehend. Many of them have been learning the mind of Christ for decades. They were being conformed as a group to his likeness. Therefore, they had a readiness as a community of believers that can't develop the same way in isolated individuals. All weekend, the mystification of reporters was notable. notable. They kept asking the same question over and over. How can you forgive Dylan Roof? They couldn't understand it. The radio and TV people kept using well-worn phrases like the triumph of the human spirit and the goodness of the American people. No, the pastor on NPR said, it is our faith. The pastor continued, to be sure, it's important not to romanticize or idealize the black church or any church. All Christian groups are riven by sin, just like all other groups. But the black churches have suffered so extremely and so unjustly for so long that they've achieved a maturity that sometimes seems almost superhuman. The aftermath of this hate crime showed this church to be an Advent church, a church that waits in living faith. Though assaulted by darkness, they carry plenty of extra oil for the long road that such devastation carries. This is a community that did not need to run out in the middle of the night to buy more oil. Theirs is a faith of resiliency and grit with a depth of faith. There's depth. They've been storing up oil for generations and they have rich practices that nurture and sustain a forgiving faith beyond human capacity or comprehensibility. And while navigating this tension between mercy and justice is difficult, I think this church uh, actually has a lamp that shines for all of us. It's a witness to us and to all other churches. So what does it mean to be ready for the coming of our Lord? And what, is, what kind of oil do we need in our lamps? Arguably, I would say, this is the question we've been asking all along this series. The oil of the Christian life in waiting is marked by hope through vulnerability. It's marked by peace that comes from being forgiven. It's marked by resting in the love of God revealed by his dying for us. It's marked by joy, not as a distraction, but as a foundation of us being wrapped up in God's own life. And it's marked by a need to never stop praying, come Lord Jesus, come. That's the kind of oil we need in our lamps. And we need the witness of the global church to spur us on to hold our lamps up for all to see. Advent isn't just a nostalgic recollection of Christmas has gone by. It's our yearly boot camp where we build up our courage to live as the church in waiting. And so I say, no wonder we wait so long to start singing the fun Christmas carols. This text reminds us soberly that many will fall away as a result of persecution that the church is going to suffer. Many will grow weary in keeping watch. Many will be foolish and ill-prepared. Many will act lawlessly and take advantage of others. Many will live in fearless inactivity. Many will cease doing good. Many will stop participating in the kingdom. And when the king returns, all that's left is a game, a sham, a charade, not genuine faith. So I'd say to us, even though this is the last week of Advent, 
We are never done with Advent, and Advent is never done with us, lest we be those bridemaids that are unprepared for the arrival of the bridegroom. For the church that waits, the promise is plain, that we will be with him. The bridegroom will return, all things will be made new, and there is an end to the darkness. For as Revelation says, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its light. Let's pray. God, we need your help to be an Advent church. And we know that you have the power by your spirit to sustain us through a difficult year where we can't help but feel like bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. Um, I pray that you would help us to be witnesses to the world um, of our hope that there is a time coming when a light will come that will put out all darkness. Um, we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.